Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, the only blockchain event and media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you won't be disappointed. Today's a beautiful day here. I just had an awesome egg frittata, and I'm really excited to get my first guest here today, Wiz. Wiz, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, bro. You know, it's very interesting because you have been at ground zero for um, the crypto space, especially in the past few years, being in Japan, um, being at the forefront of some of the Mt. Gox stuff that's been going on. And I want to talk about some of that stuff. We'll do, let's do that a little bit later. But I really want to talk about um, who you are and a lot of the podcasts and a lot of the, the the talks that I give. The question is always, how did you get into Bitcoin? Why did you know? Um, where were you? Uh, what were you wearing? That was a very odd question. Someone once asked me, what was I wearing when I got into Bitcoin? Like, why would I why would I remember that? Um, but I want to jump on a cliche for a second and tell me. A little bit about you and you know you've probably heard of it's a very long form question of course but you've probably heard of a lot of different um technologies you've and we'll get into this you ran your your own internet service provider you worked for private internet access which is the vpn that i use um and it seems like you've been in the cypherpunk movement for a long time but why bitcoin I guess I started very, very young. Um, I started my career when I was 14 years old. You know, I dropped out of school to work as a network engineer for this local internet provider uh, in downtown Honolulu, where I grew up, which was just a startup at the time. You know, I was like a intern configuring Cisco routers for DSL customers. Uh, I was working in a data center installing servers. And, you know, I was... um, I was like a teenage hacker, you know, got into a little bit of trouble here and there. So was I. Uh, well, gray hat and white hat mostly, but um, I hung out on a lot of the, you know, cyber extreme, the unknown, evil zone, IRC, stuff like that. Yeah, I pretty much grew up on IRC. Um, Fnet. I actually ran an Fnet IRC server from Hawaii, which was pretty crazy. Were you that guy who attacked my Freenode server? <laughs> yeah, funny thing. Uh, you know who owns Freenode now? Who? <laughs> uh, private Internet Access bought it, I think, last oh, year. Oh, I didn't know that. And yeah. for, is it, so private, there's a lot, there, so there's a lot of crossover that people don't realize between the crypto world and the uh, cypherpunk uh, crypto anarchist or the uh, anarcho-capitalist world. So um, Freenode, can you explain to everyone what Freenode is exactly? I guess Freenode is a privately owned IRC network, which is a little bit different from the IRC networks that I grew up on, like Fnet, which is much more decentralized. But um, Freenode was the largest. Um, maybe it is now. I know back in the day, Fnet was certainly the largest. I mean, that was probably the original IRC network. Um, you know, it was, it was more decentralized, where there was not so much governance structure. I mean, Freenode is just privately owned by one person, right? Now it is, but uh, when it first launched, wasn't it like a 
a consortium of of ownership of different groups? I'm pretty sure Freenode was always centralized um, in the sense that all the servers were run by the same person. I remember you couldn't link a server to Freenode. You had to like sponsor one or host one or something like that. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Fnet was really cool because you could just kind of run your own IRC server and then request to link it to the network. And if you were friends with everyone, they would let you in. And that's how I got my irc.aloha.net linked when I was like 18 years old or something like that. Fnet was the first one, um, and Freenode was launched originally on Fnet, but eventually, all like you said, all the Freenode servers, there was like 20 or 30 of them around the world, was owned, um, I guess, by one group or one person. But they, they actually kind of uh, touted themselves as um, super open source and everyone's welcoming, and they, they were pretty hands-off on what you can say or do on the chat network, except for... Um, if you started doing, um, like actually attacking the server itself. Sure. Nobody likes to get DDoS, but they had services, whereas Fnet was the wild west, you know, people would take over your channel and they would do all kinds of crazy things on Fnet. So all the, the centralized IRC networks like Dollnet or Freenode or even NewNet, um, you know, they all had services, whereas Fnet, I think to this day, and we probably never have services was totally different experience, right? You could just DDoS someone, you know, and take over their channel and kick them out. And And that that would happen to me all the time. (laughs) It was really, it was really sad, but a lot of the, um, so all the, all the main Bitcoin channels and even the ones uh, that Satoshi used to hang out on, uh, all the ones from 2011 were all on Freenode. Um, Interestingly enough though, Freenode, like you said, is owned by private internet access, Andrew Lee. And Andrew Lee was the first, was one of the North American directors of Mount Gox. Yeah, what a coincidence. What a crazy coincidence. There's so much connection under that. Uh, and I remember I, I met Andrew in 2011. Um, great guy. Still, I still chat with him every, every six months or so. Um, we should get him on the show, actually. And he, um, I met him. It was me, him, and um, Moot the creator of 4chan sitting in a room um, in New York city. Fun- Interestingly enough at the, um, a law school, the a law school and uh, New York law was doing a, uh, a conference on um, interestingly enough, decentralization. I don't know why back in 2011, but he was there. A moot from 4chan was there, the founder of 4chan was there. And, um, and then you had the Fiverr guys who, uh, all the guys who had founded um, Pirate Bay, they were there. So all the Pirate Bay guys were there. This was right after their major arrest and all the crazy stuff that was going on um, in Sweden and everything. So a few of them were there. And um, Andrew Lee was there. And we all kind of got... And then it was Bruce Wagner, but I don't want to talk about Bruce Wagner. Remember Bruce Wagner? I never met him, but uh, okay, I've I've heard some people say that he might be Satoshi. No, he, he's not. He was definitely not Satoshi, but he definitely took... <laughs> a lot of our bitcoins a lot a lot of people's bitcoins but whatever i don't want to um get into that right now it will digress for for hours but essentially um we were all sitting in a room together and i remember talking to the fiverr guys and fiverr is great i still use it now like what do you guys think of bitcoin and they're like listen we just got like arrested um in sweden <laughs> for running the pirate bay i think we just want to like just chill out for a little bit i think one 
the world changing killer technology that we're all going to get arrested for is enough for today. <laughs> <laughs> Ask me a year from now. Yeah, the Pirate Bay, the Pirate Bay guys were certainly crazy. Um, I mean, they they would post their <laughs> legal takedown notices on the front page of their website and just kind of spit in the face of Hollywood and and even like the whole U.S. legal system, right? So you can understand it's kind of like an Assange situation or something where Sweden was giving them asylum, so to speak, with their torrent tracker. And, uh, you know, they did all kinds of cool stuff. Like they pretended the server was in North Korea and they would spoof all these BGP announcements. So you couldn't tell where the server really was and, you know, where the actual servers were. Yeah. Was no one totally knew. different location from where the proxy was, where you would access it from. Right. So the police would go to a data center to seize the servers, but it was just like a proxy relay going somewhere else. So they would be back up in hours. Right. They would just turn on the backup proxy site. There was a, a great documentary that everyone should watch about about the Pirate Bay. But I wanted to to you brought up a good point. I saw a chart yesterday that showed that the search, the people searching for Netflix over overlaid on a chart of people searching for torrents. Um, and anyone who's who's a, over the age of twenty five will remember, even younger than that, will remember uh, searching for torrents and listening and watching and just torrent torrenting was the the way of 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 sharing files over the internet for at least when when you and i grew up and so but this the the so the chart was overlaid between searches for netflix and searches for torrenting and i think at this point netflix has eclipsed um torrents and torrent the searching for torrents has gone way down and oh yeah for sure, wanted, because it's all about convenience, right? It's all about I, I want to, you know, sit naked on my sofa and push one button and watch Game of Thrones. Versus, even if you have to pay nine dollars, right? I'll pay the nine dollars. It's it's it was never about the money, right? It was all about the UX and the convenience and the ease of use. So, at what point? At what point do we give up user experience for privacy? Because if you look at it like a lever system, right? Like think like Simpsons, Homer Simpson's in his nuclear reactor and he's got all these levers. And as one lever goes up, the other lever goes down. At what point we're pulling down privacy and decentralization and security, but the lever for user experience goes up. At what point do we give that up? Because if you ask a lot of people, that's the biggest issue with cryptocurrency today. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to, if you just look at the cryptocurrency space, when you set up a Bitcoin full node and when you set up like a Monero full node, the amount of CPU resources and the amount of it, it's just insane to run an, a Monero full node is is a ridiculously huge amount of computing resources compared to a Bitcoin full node, which you can just run on a Raspberry Pi. Right. I think the end result is going to be something like Bitcoin, but with, you know, all these like coin Bitcoin joins and. Well, no, I mean, some kind of like mixer or wasabi wallet, you know, where it's perfectly mixing all the transactions so that you can't tell. But despite all that, everything's kind of just in plain text and out there. I mean, you know, there's, there's a bunch of like Zcash and Monero zero knowledge proofs that make things very, very complicated. But I think in the end, blockchain analysis will just be defeated by simple, you know, coin join mixer type transactions. So, you know, I'm, I'm like a, 
ride or die with Bitcoin. Bitcoin was it's my legacy. As I see it, I love Bitcoin. And if Bitcoin is not it, then we've kind of lost and nothing else will be it. And on that note, the question I want to ask you is, I believe that the world and the industry, um, you know, the large big four, Google, Facebook, they've woken up to the fact that um, the younger generation wants better uh, financial services. And that's why we see Venmo. That's why we see pop money and all these different apps to make moving money easier. Um, but at the same time, um, have, have, will, will, my question is, will Bitcoin be able to have its user experience gain fast enough where we will be able to reach, um, this mass use of cryptocurrency or will it stay like a fringe thing? where it's more of like fun, like a novelty, or we'll be able to eclipse something like Venmo? Well, I think Bitcoin is many things, right? It's a store of value, most importantly. But now that we have the Lightning Network, it's a very convenient, fast, secure medium of exchange as well. I don't know if I you, agree I, with I you. If yeah, if I, you I use Lightning at all. It's, I, have, I use Lightning and it's amazing. And, and, and you're right. A hundred percent. I and but the question, I guess, my question is more the user experience because at the end of the day, we care about privacy and decentralization. But let's be realistic: we all use Facebook, we all use Twitter, we all use a lot of these apps where we basically hand over our privacy. And th there are ways to 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 basically control your privacy better, but most people don't care. But the people that don't care are the ones that we need. When Bitcoin is not fully decentralized yet. It's on the, what I call the path to decentralization. It's getting there. It's the only one that really is on that path. They're all, but Bitcoin is not decentralized enough yet for it to be a two to 5,000 year store of value. It's getting there. We need more nodes. We need more, more minor decentralization. We need more people using it. So the people to use it are the ones that right now don't really care for it. So how do we get them to care, I guess, is my my question. But more of my question is, how have we run out of time? Are, are, are people okay with Venmo and just will not care ever? And these are some hard yeah. questions. And, and I don't want them, to, I don't want to be right here. I don't want to be wrong. I, I just want to, want to make me feel better, actually, because <laughs> I love Bitcoin. Yeah, I think you're asking many questions at the same time. Like, of course, Venmo and PayPal and all those centralized uh, payment processing services are very convenient and easy to use. And I don't think the real killer use case of Bitcoin is to compete with Venmo. It's to compete with USD and JPY and fiat currencies, right? And, and I think regardless of whether a government-sanctioned central bank is printing out fiat currency on paper or digital dollars in a central database or altcoins and shitcoins and ICOs just printing out tokens. I think the real killer use case for Bitcoin is the fact that the supply is capped at 21 million Bitcoin. It can't be censored or controlled. And that's really what's going to It's a censorship it resistant chain. Digital scarcity, right? Yeah, it's censorship resistant, digital scarcity. And to me, that's the number one reason. 
And like you said, there there are a lot of other uses for 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 Bitcoin or blockchain, which is like the like the term of today. Yeah, you're gonna have the store of value first, right? Which Bitcoin, I think, is rapidly becoming an alternative to gold or any other hard asset. And next, it's gonna be taking on the Venmo and the PayPal and. And that's what Lightning is, right? So now Lightning's kind of coming online. I did a meetup in Tokyo a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, where we were selling beers in the bar, beers and pizza for Lightning. And man, what, what kind an, of pizza? What an, barbecue chicken pizza. Oh California. man, that sounds so good right now. I'm on the <laughs> keto diet, so I can't eat that. Yeah, but I'm sure you're having some good steaks. So. I, every night, every night. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to complain about. Yeah, I just think once you use Lightning and you realize that the Lightning Network solves both the scalability problem and the instant confirmation problem, you know, if you just send a normal Bitcoin transaction, you have to wait like 10 or 20 minutes to get a confirmation if you don't trust the person. Now you get Lightning, you just instantly know that you have the money and you can give them the pizza or the beer without any risk of a double spend attack. That's actually really huge. So what was that meetup like? What type of people were there? Oh, it was pretty cool. We had um, Nicholas Storier presenting about BTC Pay Server. Um, we had Christian Moss presenting about his Lightning wallet called uh, Pebble. And it was pretty cool to see, uh, you know, the Pebble wallet being used for the BTC Pay Server node, which is running for the bar, to buy actual pizza and beer at the bar live with Lightning. So it was like the ultimate dog fooding. You know, lightning so the oriented. experience has gotten better with Lightning, you would say? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's really like the perfect form of money. What was it like? What was it like growing up in Hawaii? Hawaii is very isolated. I think it's the most isolated place in the whole world. So, you know, when you when you grow up in Honolulu, even which is a is a real city, or even if you grow up one of the outer islands, which is just deep countryside you hear about this world out there you know you hear about all these countries and and europe and asia and and you know it's some place that exists but you don't really think about it you're just so isolated in hawaii so when i was 20 years old i came to tokyo for i think a one week round trip ticket and after one week i decided i was staying you know and that was 13 years ago i lived in japan why tokyo well, Tokyo is amazing. You know, it's the biggest city in the world and it's just, you know, it's endless, crazy adventures. It's it's whatever you want to make it, right? You can, you can make a business, you can make friends, you can find love, you can do anything in Tokyo and it's very peaceful, it's very clean, it's very well organized. You know, there's lots of uh, interesting characters like Mark Carpellis or Roger Ver, you know, that you might run into at the local Bitcoin meetup. You know, it's just... So many people, so many things going on. It's really the center of the universe for a lot of things. Even in the Bitcoin scene in Tokyo is pretty cool. Had you traveled to the mainland a lot as growing up? Yeah, when I was 17 years old, I had a rack full of servers in the data center in Los Angeles. And I was doing this web hosting company. Um, I don't know. I just never really felt an attachment to the U.S. mainland or I guess USA, America at all. I want to... I mean, Hawaii... I wanna go into that a little bit. So here you are in, in Hawaii and you kind of like East or West, you, your life right. is at a pivotal point and you either go United States mainland or you go Japan and Asia and you jump 
to Asia, and I'm and I'm trying to understand why. Yeah, that's a good point. Most people from Hawaii, you know, with a clue who are pretty smart, they'll usually go to like Los Angeles or San Francisco or Las Vegas, somewhere on the mainland that has a good good university or some career opportunities. I never really, you know, I, I was the only white kid in my class in school growing up. It's just there's so much Asian culture in Hawaii, and I always felt more. Drawn what year to was Asia. this? What year was or the this? range? Um, well, I guess I quit 90s? school when I was fourteen, so I would have that would have been ninety nine. Okay. Nine, yeah, and. Um, you know, I had pretty much done everything there was to do in Hawaii by the time I was 20 years old. I mean, that sounds kind of ridiculous to say, but, you know, I had my own little consulting business. I would go to some surf shop on the North Shore and fix their point of sale system. You know, I would, you know, work for all the telecom companies in downtown Honolulu. I mean, there's not a whole lot to do if you want a really serious professional IT career. It's safe to say you were the Hawaii tech guy. Yeah, there's there's not a lot going on in Hawaii for a teenage hacker kid who wants to start his own business or be a consultant. I mean, you know, you, anyone with a clue basically goes to the mainland or goes to Asia and they work for Microsoft or now Google nowadays, you know. So when I went to Tokyo when I was 20 years old, it was a no-brainer. I had a one-week round-trip ticket. After one week, I checked out of the hotel, got myself an apartment, started my own company, You know, did consulting for a while. What do you mean you started your own company? Did you have connections in Japan or did you just kind of stay and say, I'll figure it out, work in a coffee shop or something? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I was 20 years old, you know, coming from my teenage years, I was crazy. You know, I was so overconfident. It was kind of like being the biggest the biggest fish in this little pond in Honolulu going out into the big ocean, the big wide world. And you had a small fish in a really big ass pond. Yeah, exactly. I, I just <laughs> way too overconfident. Right. So after I moved to Tokyo, Did you make any mistakes? Are you kidding me? Of course. So as soon as I moved to Tokyo, I realized I don't speak any Japanese. I don't know anybody in Japan. So even if I, it would help. Yeah. Even if I, um, you know, even if I wanted to, I couldn't even get a job at the Family Mart or the Seven Eleven, right? <laughs> you know, the, the, I realized that there's no way I'm going to be a successful consultant right now. So I got myself a job at Opera Software uh, in their, you know, which is a Norwegian software company, or it used to be anyway, in their Tokyo branch office. And that was a really great job because I got to work with all these very, very skilled engineers taking care of their Japanese customers, which were all huge Japanese companies like, you know, Toshiba, Panasonic, Fujitsu, Sony, even Nintendo, like the Nintendo Wii used to be powered by Opera and all these cool projects. Really? Yeah. Was, pretty much every Japanese TV has some code that I hacked on there running inside it. Did you, did you end up learning Japanese? Yeah. I mean, I didn't learn Japanese from working at Opera, but um, I just kind of picked, picked it up over the years. Yeah, I've been in Japan for like 13 years. I would say the most how do you, difficult. How do you just pick up Japanese? Well, the first two or three years is really tough because if you haven't studied at all, you're just struggling to say basic things like numbers or days of the week or you know just elementary school level. But once you kind of get past that, you reach this critical mass point of you don't know what something is, but you know enough Japanese where you can kind of explain it in some different words, and then you can learn new words very rapidly, and then 
you learn very quickly from there. So now the the vocabulary stage. Yeah, I guess so. Right, the vocabulary stage is a good way to put it. Once you get to that stage when learning um, any language, when you're just now learning words, but you have grammar down pat and you know enough words to explain yourself, or you know enough words to explain that you don't know what that word is, but you can say enough things to make someone understand exactly. you've reached a, a, a pretty good level. I would say almost fluent in Japanese, but you're just learning new words. Exactly. Yeah. So once you get to that point, you can go anywhere, you can meet anyone and just kind of start talking like you would in your native language. And I think I already had enough Japanese culture, or at least a basic understanding just from growing up in Hawaii, because most people in Hawaii are third generation or fifth generation Japanese or Chinese or Korean or Filipino or from Europe somewhere. You know, there, there's such a big mix in Hawaii where you have at least a basic understanding of a few other cultures. So that really helped. So here you are in, in Japan working for opera or someone and you learned about Bitcoin. And would you say that you fell in love with Bitcoin because it jived with your tech background and freedom background, or was it more because you here you are being you're in Japan and like you said, you're a small fish in a big pond and you're not really different. Um, you are different, but you don't really stand out. And here you are now in the crypto space or the Bitcoin space, as we called it, and you can stand out from everyone else. You could be different. Yeah, that's a very good, that was a very interesting time. So you're right. I was at Opera Software when I first heard about Bitcoin. And I think the way I first heard about it was actually from the Honolulu connections I had at the time. Um, I think Bitcoin was about $8 when I first got into it. And it was only trading on probably Mt. Gox and maybe BTCE or whatever the exchanges at the time were. And I, th and I remember I bought... Do you remember BTCE? Yeah, I remember. We'll, we'll talk about BTC later. But um, yeah, eight bucks. I bought one Bitcoin at eight bucks. And um, I think I bought it from someone at the hacker space on Honolulu or something like that. And I remember when Bitcoin went up to like a hundred bucks on Mt. Gox, then I was like, okay, I'm going to start trading this. I'm going to start figuring out what is this Bitcoin thing. And you know, at first it was just something that your friends kind of told you about, or maybe you read about it on Slashdot. And I remember, I remember my friend posting like, oh yeah, I bought Bitcoin at eight bucks and now I'm selling at a hundred bucks and I can buy this hard drive. And he was really happy about that, you know, kind of geeky things. But at the, back in those days, it was so new. It was, it was really pure. But like you said, you weren't thinking Lambos, you were thinking New hard drives. Right, right. That's a good way to put it. The, you didn't, you know, unless you are already a multimillionaire, you wouldn't throw more than a couple hundred bucks into Bitcoin at that time. It was very experimental, very new. And and that's why, save for a few people, most original OGs didn't have the money to put the money in to be able to become massively wealthy. And two, we were already so involved in the space you know, we had to work other day jobs to feed our families. That's true. Most OGs, I think, if you weren't already financially successful, you didn't really, Bitcoin didn't really make you rich or wealthy at all. You know, maybe you, maybe you made 
thousands of dollars from Bitcoin over the years, but you didn't make millions of dollars, right? During the first Bitcoin bubble, um, I was touted as this the first Bitcoin millionaire. This was 2013, like a few six months before I was eventually arrested. But but truth be told, um, you know, and Bloomberg Businessweek put down a full color page ad um, about me and everything. You know, here's the Bitcoin millionaire. But I had explained to them in private that yes, I'm a millionaire, but I'm a millionaire because I own a large piece of a company that raised money at a $10 million valuation. So technically I'm yes, a millionaire, but that doesn't make a good story. So they put this whole thing, Oh, here's the Bitcoin millionaire. But at the time of printing, I probably, at the time that was printed, I think I had like maybe $40,000 in my bank account. Yeah. I think we were all around the same level at that time. You know, I remember trading arbitrage on Gox and Bitstamp when Bitstamp opened up, there was this huge arbitrage opportunity. I don't know if you remember the Gox premium, but when Mark was running, yeah, when Mark was delaying the withdrawals for various reasons, there was, um, he, first he suspended the fiat withdrawals, remember? So you couldn't- with- The fiat withdrawals went first. Right. So people had to buy Bitcoin to get their money out and they were willing to buy Bitcoin at a 25, 30% premium just to get the Bitcoin off. Yes, exactly. And so- the, the thing about that was that if you had a local bank account in Japan, you could do a domestic Japanese bank withdrawal and it would actually go through very quickly, like in a couple, maybe two or three days, you could get your money out of Gox in fiat. So in, in, in JPY though, in, in, in Japanese, yeah. Yes, but he had a, he had some kind of bot where you could sell BTC for JPY at I think 3% more than spot or something reasonable. So you're making, like you said, 20, 30% on the arbitrage and you're probably losing. This was what year? I want to say 2013. Yeah. It was 2013. Okay. So yeah, about once a week I could do one cycle. I would buy Bitcoin on Bitstamp, send the Bitcoin to Mt. Gox, sell it at a 30% premium from what I bought it at an hour earlier, and then withdraw the money to my Japanese bank account and then wire that money to Bitstamp, right? Which, yeah, about once per week. Um, of course, in the end, you know, we got goxed. It's a whole nother conversation, I suppose. A lot of people listening to this are either not familiar with the story, are vaguely familiar with the story, or more people probably lost money on Mount Gox. Yeah, I think... If you're an OG and you haven't lost money from some exchange or from some scam, you know what I mean? You, that means you weren't really active in the Bitcoin. There were so many. There were so um, many, right? Like how many times? Crypto exchange, the one in Australia, 30 grand. Yeah. I mean, how many times did we get screwed over by, it's, you know, it's Bitcoin, it's crypto. There's a lot of scams out there. So even if you're a newcomer, you're probably getting scammed, right? It's just the OGs have been scammed so many times now. <laughs> we, can kind of, we're jaded. Yeah, we're jaded, right? It's like, yeah, of course you're going to probably lose a little bit here or there. Someone sent me, a friend of mine who runs a conference company, um, sent me a message the other day. He runs these conferences all over the world. And they're not crypto conferences, but he does like crypto sub conferences within the conferences. And he sent me a message and he said, hey, have you heard of this coin, you know? And I was like, 
No, I didn't even look it up. <laughs> I, I didn't even check CoinMark. I didn't check. It. I just said no. I never heard of it. I was busy. I was doing something, and he said, "Well, you know, our normal sponsorship is twenty grand, but they're willing to pay us fifty grand for the normal sponsorship, but it's in their coin." I was like, "Scam!" I didn't even <laughs> look. I didn't look it up. I just said scam, exactly. and then he's like, "Well, you don't even know what it is." I was like, "Okay." So I go to CoinMarketCap, and they're listed there, and yeah, forty percent pump. But there's seven dollars of volume. <laughs> yeah, and I said, dude, you cannot take even a hundred dollars of this coin. You will lose. Do not take it. And that pretty much sums it up, right? Every scam, well, not every scam, but most altcoin scams are the same concept. It's it's you know, it's either pump and dump or you know, you're printing money, right? It's the same scam that the central banks do and the governments around the world. This is why Zimbabwe dollars are worthless or why you need a, a million Vietnamese dong or Japanese yen. It's just the currencies have been so inflated. And it doesn't matter, like I said, with paper money or with tokens on a blockchain, the actual database used doesn't matter. It's the same scam. If you print tokens, you print money arbitrarily on worthless pieces of paper worthless tokens you're just stealing sure but don't you so i will agree with you on that and i will say that a lot of these one a lot of these have the intent to scam a lot of them are just kind of oblivious and don't realize but wouldn't you agree that even if like one out of a hundred are not scams you still need them to further the development of this whole space because let's be honest like this whole industry is like throwing shit at the walls to see what sticks and if we're not <laughs> throwing shit at the walls then we don't know what's going to stick well but you can do that without arbitrarily taking other people's money and gambling with it essentially yeah i, th I think your one percent analogy is probably accurate and I think a lot of scammers don't actually realize that they're scammers, right? Nobody that's that's the problem. That's the problem, right? Even if you don't intend to defraud anyone, you know, I, I've met so many people that don't even know anything about blockchains or ICOs, but they, they come and tell me like, oh, I just got hired as this advisor for this project. I'm like, let me guess, it's an ICO scam. They're like, no, 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 it's not a scam. They're all the other advisors are really good people that, you know, they're like very famous, reputable people that they trust and known for years. I'm like, the people that are doing the closest to you. Yeah, they don't even realize that they're scamming people. But like I said, they're just printing tokens. And of course, they have some very complicated business model that distracts you from the fact that they're issuing their own money. You know, we're going to revolutionize fill in the blank by putting it on the blockchain and you get points for doing this thing and you get coins for, you know, it's, it, it's all a distraction. So I want to get into Mt. Gox, but before I, before I do that, I want to um, tell you a story that you just reminded me of. So because of my, my history in crypto um, and my history of, you know, getting arrested and, and serving um, some time in prison here in the U S I, um, I'm always flagged as a uh, potential like dangerous flyer. So whenever my wife and I come back from a trip overseas and come back into the States, which we probably do every few months, um, it's at a point where, you know, if you've ever flagged to the U.S., you know that as soon as you get to customs, you know, they stamp your passport, 
or any country, they stamp your passport and you move on your merry way. Um, for me, it's they look at my passport, they type in some information and they say, Mr. Shrem, um, please follow this officer to a secondary inspection. And the first few times that happens, it freaked me out. But now I'm used to it. And in fact, I even like have a printed piece of paper that I kind of tuck in my passport um, that I tuck in my passport and I put it. Um, I give it to the to the customs officer when I get in, without, which has a little more details, because eventually when he asked me to go to secondary, it saves a little bit of time when the secondary officer has this piece of paper. I'm, I'm prepared already for this. Um, it sucks, but at this point, there's nothing I could really do about it. So um, I go to secondary inspection, and I'm sitting there, and now because I'm married, they allow my wife to come with me. But it used to be when we were just engaged, um, she couldn't come with me, and she'd be freaking out and baggage claim because it would take an hour. So I would bring a book with me because you're not allowed to use your cell phones. Like I said, I'm unprepared. Um, so I'm in there and customs officer calls my name. Very nice. Very respect, very, very uh, um, respectful. He asked me my name, um, asked me where I was, what I was doing there, uh, asked me um, what industry I work in. And there's no bidding around the bush. So I say I work in the cryptocurrency space. Um, and they say, what do you do in the current cryptocurrency space? And I said, oh, I did this. And then they get into questions like, um, you know, why were you in jail? And I, one guy even asked me like, why did you commit your crime? And I said, what kind of question is that? Like, are you, you know, are you a judge or whatever? Um, but one time the guy, Hey says, Oh, you're in the cryptocurrency space. Really nice guy. And I said, um, I said, yeah, he goes, the website is cell phone. He goes, you know, my, my brother-in-law got me to buy, um, some of these coins called, uh, called vice vice coins or vice tokens or something like that. And I was like, Oh, um, and my wife is like sweating cause this is her first time in secondary inspection. She's like sweating, you know, what is going on here? Why is this guy asking about this token? Is it like a trap? Did you, did you own this token chart? Like what's going on here? Like what, what is it, why is this guy asking you about a crypto token? So, so he's asking me about it and, and I'm like, I've never heard of it. Um, however, and I was being totally, I never heard of it before. I said, I never heard of it. However, um, you know, if you want to give me your, your email address, I'm happy to like do some research and send you, send you what I find. And I don't want outright tell him that this is a scam because like <laughs> he showed me his cell phone and it literally had all the markings of this is a scam. So you're just trying to get out of secondary. Like, you're just trying to, I was just trying to get, get the hell out of that airport. I want, I want to go home. Um, oh yeah. So you yeah, should no, put all right. your money in this coin. It looks solid. hundred percent. Like looks great, man. Karen's great. Bond Can, you Barons, man. Can you stand my passport now? <laughs> So he lets me out finally. And no, so I said, if you want to give me your email address, then I can, I can um, send you some research about this. He's like, well, I can't do that. And he immediately goes back to like customs officer mode. Like I crossed the line, you know, folds up, take his phone, folds it up, takes out my piece of paper. He goes, all right, Mr. Shrem, um, you're free to go. Stamps it, you know, and you're go. <laughs> I'm like, that literally was the weirdest experience I ever had. Dealing with like a customs <laughs> officer, dude. That the only time I ever got pulled in a secondary was in Canada, actually, and I had just gone to DefCon in Vegas, so I had flown from Vegas to like Vancouver or somewhere, and it was a red eye flight, probably five or six in the morning, and I land, and I'm all totally out of it. And the immigration officer is asking me all these questions, and I think I answered some of the questions wrong, and it's like, all right, you're going to secondary. And 
instantly I'm in the room with all the Muslim people and the drug dealers. You know, like the guy next to me is like this Chinese kid who has a very long pinky fingernail and there's like five cuts. Yeah, it's like a it's a thing, right? Um, no, what what is that? What is that thing? Apparently, in like Chinese culture, if you have a long pinky fingernail, I think it goes back to you know hundreds of years. That means you do, you don't work in the fields if you have long fingernail, right? So it's like a status symbol or something. Anyway, um, you know, I mean, I'm in the room. Heard that before that's interesting. Yeah. So so the guy next to me has like five customers off, just drilling them. It's like six in the morning and I just came from DEF CON. I'm like all hungover. And he's like, all right, so why are you coming to Canada? What are you doing here? You know, he's, he's treating me like criminal. I'm like, well, I'm a security consultant and uh, I just went to this hacker conference in Vegas. He's like, what? You're a hacker? You the word hacker? Yeah. Yeah. Why would you, know, you do that? Well, I guess to normal people, I guess it's a very negative term, but in the in, in the security industry, you know, white hat hacker is a legitimate profession. So he starts going through all my stuff and I have all these like hacking tools that I picked up at DEF CON, like the badges from DEF CON that light up and everything and all this, you know, colorful hacker shit. So he's looking through all this stuff. He's like, oh, I guess you really are a hacker security consultant. But it takes like an hour out of your life or longer, right? Just to go through that whole ordeal. And, you know, he has to watch me go to the toilet because he thought I might be like throwing away drugs or something. It's, it's just like secondary is like one of the worst experiences in the world. You have no rights. You're in this weird state where you're not even in the country. So like you have you have no rights as an individual or no constitutional guarantees. They can search everything, ask you all these questions. And if you're not a citizen of the country, they can just say, we're denying you entry and deport you basically. Wow, interesting. So so you've you've definitely been through similar situations. Except yeah. you didn't get asked to be about Vicecoin or Vicecoin <laughs> or whatever it was. Man, this is kind of before was of crypto was mainstream. Or, or one time I was in secondary in Japan and they, um, you know, I had overstayed my visa by like one day or something. And oh, uh, no. yeah, but I had a visa approved. It was just like a paperwork thing. Um, anyway, yeah, I mean, secondary sucks. That's okay. So, so, so you're, so now it's essentially, um, it's like late 2013, early 2014, you're in, you're in Japan and Mt. Gox announces that, um, for those who don't know, Mt. Gox probably had 70 to 80% market share of all Bitcoin trading globally. Is that accurate? Yeah. I think at one time they were even higher than that. Um, that sounds, yeah. Sounds kind of ridiculous to think about now, right? Like one company that's centralized. Yeah, it really was that bad. Mt. Gox was the pivotal, or not the pivotal, the the largest and most central company to the Bitcoin ecosystem at this point. Trade with confidence on the world's largest Bitcoin exchange. Remember yes. That? <laughs> at this point, it's the beating heart, the brain, the liver, and the kidneys. It's all of it of the body of Bitcoin. Well, you one had, day, Bitstamp had just started, right? And sure, Bitstamp had, was, yeah, but it, it's small peanuts. And I think Coinbase too, to right? Mt. In the USA, you had Coinbase, no? Again, small peanuts compared to Mt. Gox at sure, this point. Sure, yes, at this yes. point. Um, at, so Mt. Gox announces that I think something like 850,000 Bitcoin. So somewhere between 5 and 10% of all the Bitcoin in circulation at that time were missing 
or likely stolen. Yeah, but at the time, half a billion dollars. I mean, even way, way before they shut down or had a lot of problems. Yeah, I mean, that was that was the really painful part, right? Is that you didn't know what would happen if you deposited money on Gox. So I was doing that arbitrage trading. And, and a lot of people were. There was that Bitcoin builder guy who was buying. So what, what actually happened was you had you had Bitcoin on Mt. Gox and you had Mt. Gox Bitcoin, which were exen- essentially like these fake Bitcoin that you could only trade within Mt. Gox system. Right. There was Gox BTC and there Gox was BTC and regular BTC. BTC. But there were people buying. There were people. There was a whole secondary market. There were people buying gox btc which were essentially bitcoin that you couldn't remove from mount gox before mount gox imploded there were people buying gox btc at a discount from and there was one guy i think his name was like bitcoin builder or something was his website and he bought he he had so much faith in bitcoin um with in mount gox and he bought a ton of it and i don't know what ended up happening to him well, he's one of the largest creditors of Mt. Cox now. But yeah, Josh oh, really? Jones has had the Bitcoin builder, I guess, exchange. That was him. Yes. Yes. Yeah. A lot of my friends were able to actually get out of Mt. Gox because of him. Yeah, but it was only like 15 cents on the dollar, 20 cents on the dollar. He could have charged a lot more. Yeah. So he basically bought everyone's debt at, at a barely a discount. When now you have hedge funds, if you have any debt on Mt. Gox, you have hedge funds that will buy your debt for what? 40 cent, 40 cents on the dollar? No, I think it's more like 15 cents on the dollar, but he wasn't actually buying it himself. He actually created an exchange where people could place bid or ask orders for their Mt. Gox bitcoins. Right. And so, so, so Bitfinex actually claims that they were the first ones to issue their own token as debt. But here you have Mt. Gox didn't do it themselves. The market created its own second. It's crazy to think about that for a second. Here you have a company where you have a half a billion dollars of of debt of of debt that's in that that people are saying, "Where is my money?" A half a billion dollars worth, and it's not. It didn't implode yet, but you had this secondary market that was created by the market itself. Now Gox didn't do it. No, you know, a few different companies did it to trade the debt before the company had even imploded. Right. Mt. Gox had this feature where you could internally transfer Bitcoins between Mt. Gox accounts. And Josh Jones had created this system on top of that so that you could send your balance to his account. And then that would be your Bitcoin builder exchange balance. You would have Gox BTC at that point. And then you could trade that for real BTC and then withdraw the real BTC. Why were people willing to buy Mt. Gox debt even before Mt. Gox had imploded? Well, it was a huge discount. I mean, if you genuinely believe that Mt. Gox was solvent, would you buy one Bitcoin for 0.15, you know, for 15%? Of course you would, right? So it was a, it was a good bet, you know? And even even at the at the lowest market, I think you could buy Gox BTC for 2 or 3%. Um, basically when Mark finally came out and announced that all was lost and we lost all the Bitcoins, because remember there was a point where he, he came out and announced we only have 2000 Bitcoins left. So yeah, I remember like two or some crazy small number compared to the basically almost zero. So at that point, the price on Bitcoin builder crashed down to almost zero. And so you could buy Gox BTC extremely cheap. And then a few weeks later, he 
quote unquote, found the 200,000 Bitcoin. And then that's what the Mt. Gox estate is primarily made up of now. It's, it's that asset, right? So what happened? I mean, you're, you're, you're at ground zero of Mt. Gox. And in fact, you worked on, um, did you work in an official capacity with the, with, with, um, with what's his name? The, uh, creditor, not the creditor, the, um, the word I'm losing the word right now, a trustee Kobayashi. No. So, so yeah. So me and a bunch of other creditors made this company called Wiz security consulting or WizSec, um, which I left actually pretty early on. I was kind of like the, the intro guy or the more accurately, the person who brought everyone into the room. So, um, my colleague at opera, his name is Kim Nielsen, uh, an attorney from New York, Daniel Kelman, um, and Mark Carpellis. I mean, Mark was involved. Well, we weren't friends with Mark before we got goxed, but once we started investigating the failure of Mount Gox, we started talking to him and building a relationship with him. And, you know, it was bacon, apple pies in his kitchen. No, you weren't. Yes. I think there's a photo of me and Kim in Mark's kitchen published in like the wall street journal where we're baking apple pies. Oh, we lost. That's the best part. I want to hear that. story. Oh yeah. So at one point I was, I would literally go to Mark's house with all this like whipped cream and other ingredients to bake apple pies. And Mark would teach me his secret family recipe for apple quiche. And we would bake apple pies. And and I would essentially ask Mark, Hey, can we have the Mount Gox database? And he would say no, or he would say something like, I don't have it or something like that. So give me this picture. You're in Mark's kitchen baking apple pie and there's, half a billion dollars at stake and you're just nonchalantly asking, Hey, can I, can we have the database? And Mark saying, can you go slice some more apples? Pretty much. And slowly, you know, maybe we'd get bits of it here and there as we kind of built a relationship with Mark over time, you know, we would ask a whole bunch of questions and maybe he would give us a little bit of data and then we would kind of analyze that data and then go back to Mark and say, okay, this is what we found out from that data. And, you know, if, after you go back and forth enough times, he kind of sees that we're legit and trusts us more. And, you know, that's how we slowly got the whole thing. That was around the time I actually left the, the uh, company, though, to go back as a freelancer. And so after I left, Kim essentially, you know, reconstructed the whole Mt. Gox database from various bits and pieces and crowdsourced some of it and this and here. And, and you know after he reconstructed the entire database, he analyzed it for a period of probably two or three years and cracked Mt. Gox. You know, he, um, he did this amazing talk at a Bitcoin conference in Europe where he explained how Mt. Gox was hacked several times over several years. And he has this counter in the corner of his presentation where every time Mt. Gox gets hacked, another incident, the counter goes up on how many Bitcoins and how much cash was stolen this time. And turns out the majority of the Bitcoins were stole actually very early on in 2013 or, or before then, 2011 actually. And Mark was basically running a fractional reserve, maybe fractional reserve is not the correct term, an insolvent 
exchange for pretty much the entire time. I mean, if you look at the history, Mt. Gox was never really solvent, right? It was always- Did Mark know? Of course Mark knew. That's like, Charlie, if your um, bit instant was short some Bitcoins, wouldn't you know immediately? Like, that's your job to know, right? Sure, a hundred percent. Yeah. So, so then, how how hard is it to do a database query? Okay, what are the total number of customer liabilities? Oh, it's this amount. Okay, how many bitcoins do we have in the account? If you were willfully ignorant. Do you think on purpose he would never do an audit? Of course. I, maybe he had. Maybe he said to himself, "I know these coins are in cold storage. If I ever need them, I can access them." Yeah, um, I don't know about the whole cold storage story that he was telling us. I remember being in Mark's kitchen after we had just baked an apple pie together and I asked him straight to his face. I said, Mark, did you run the Willy bot? And then he looked away and said, no, I, did, I didn't run the Willy bot. Sure enough, a couple of years later in court, he acknowledged running the Willy bot. And it was something that the original founder, Jed McCaleb and him had been using for many, many years to move balances back and forth because- How was- how was Jed involved in the Willy bot in 2013? I don't think Jed was involved in 2013, but when Mt. Gox kind of started or during the transitionary period, Mt. Gox was hacked. And when it was short Bitcoins, I think it was short like 80,000 Bitcoins when Jed handed it over to Mark. He recommended to Mark to trade. He was short how much Bitcoin? 80,000 Bitcoins, which wasn't a lot of money at the time because I think- It wasn't Bit a lot of money back then, no. Right. I think Bitcoin was like 50 cents. So you know, you're short 40 grand. You could easily get an investor to put that in and cover the balance. Of course, Mark, you know, Mark just kept the insolvency going and it got worse and worse over time. But the purpose of the Willybot, from my understanding, was to basically move the, move the money or move the absence of money around so that you could keep liquidity going on. And eventually Mark modified the bot to trade, to basically gamble with the customer's holdings, right? On the open market. So he would try and buy Bitcoin and sell Bitcoin. And he ended up just losing more and more money. At this point, at the end of the day, down the road, when, you know, Mt. Gox is going through its civil rehabilitation or bankruptcy or whatever you want to call it. Cause there's, you know, it goes back and forth. If I had a hundred dollars in Bitcoin in Mt. Gox at the time, how much will I get back? Well, the cool thing about Mt. Gox being in bankruptcy is that the very slow and inefficient Japanese legal system essentially forces all the creditors to hold, right? You're, you're holding your Bitcoin, same thing when I went to prison. Exactly, I was right? through the bear market. When you came out of prison, you must have done amazingly well on whatever Bitcoin you had stashed away. I remember when we were talking over email while you were in prison, you know. Yeah, when I I had I I had the Bitcoin before I went into prison was $180 and and um when I got out it was maybe over 500, but I would have had to live on my Bitcoin over that the next year and a half which was still around $180, $200 during that year and a half. I would have to sell a lot of them. Right. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, if, you know, maybe, maybe this could be a convenient service is to craft a special Bitcoin transaction where you send Bitcoin to yourself in the future, where there's some kind of CSV time lock, a certain number. You could time lock Bitcoin, but you can also unlock that with, with a private key, right? Yeah. I think there's, um, 
a number of security concerns by doing it. Like say there's some epic vulnerability discovered in Bitcoin. Well, you don't want your Bitcoin to be locked up into in a unspendable address, you know? Yeah, that's the biggest issue with that. But so now all these people are forced holding. And so if you had a hundred dollars in Bitcoin back then, you may have two or three Bitcoin. And now when that comes out, you'll have right at these prices, $15,000. However, so no matter what the haircut they have to take, they're going to make out all the, all the, all the creditors are going to make out, but then you'll have this huge influx of Bitcoin on the market. Do you think it'll cause like a price decline? Yeah. So there's this website called gockstocks.com where uh, we did a post or um, where someone did a post of the effects that Kobayashi dumping the Bitcoins had on the market. And if you look at the bubble or whatever you want to call it, the, the bull run from late 2017, when Bitcoin starts to decline from its $20,000 peak, you can see all the times that the trustee sold Bitcoin. If you line up those dates on the price chart, those were exactly when all the big red candles were. So obviously dumping. Why was he dumping? He's, re he's returning people's dollars. Well, for whatever reason, he decided to sell a whole bunch of the Mt. Gox Bitcoins on the open market, even though Jesse at Kraken advised, advised against it. And pretty much all the creditors want to be paid back Bitcoin as Bitcoin. But for some specific reasons under Japanese bankruptcy law, he has to pay out the claims or at least some of the bankruptcy claims as, as Japanese yen. So... He did what he felt he had to do. Of course, he sold way more Bitcoins than he had to. I think I think he sold like twice as much Bitcoin as he had to. But for whatever reason, you know, he dumped all this Bitcoins on the market. And, the, you know, that was probably why the, the crash uh, was so severe in early 2018 was because of, you know, it was certainly helped a lot by that dumping pressure, right? Now, Mark spends a year in prison and ends up being not guilty of a bunch of crimes, but becomes guilty of some low level embezzlement charge and essentially has to serve no more prison time except for what he had already served. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, th I think I actually tried to attend his sentencing hearing, but um, I couldn't get a seat in the courtroom. I think the crime he was actually convicted of was, falsifying electronic records or something like this. And that was the Willybot and what he essentially admitted to doing during his criminal trial. But why would he ad admit that? Don't you have the, do you have the right in Japan to not incriminate yourself? Well, his whole argument was that he was doing it in defense or I'm saying his whole argument was he was trying to get Mt. Gox out of the hole that it was in. He was trying to help the exchange. Basically, he didn't have any evil intentions. He didn't steal any Bitcoins, right? All the Bitcoins were stolen back in 2011 when the hot wallet was compromised. And he didn't either, either he didn't realize it or for whatever reason, the theft continued for many years until there was essentially nothing left. And the only real cold storage he had was those 200,000 Bitcoins that were stashed away and that he quote unquote forgot about. So, 
what's the what's the involvement of BTCE in this? That's actually a really good question that I don't think has um, fully been answered yet. So there's this Russian guy named Vinik who's arrested now, and I've heard a lot of things about this guy. But basically, from what I understand, he was single-handedly running BTCE. And for whatever reason, the stolen Mt. Cox Bitcoins were essentially laundered through BTCE. And I don't know if he was involved in the thefts or if he was even aware of the thefts. I mean, it's probably likely that he was, you know, at least to some degree, or maybe he didn't know at all, you know, but it doesn't really matter at this point. I mean, several countries are trying to extradite him and I think his life is pretty much over. For you, you know, the, the real thing about BTCE getting shut down is I think the U.S. government needed a good excuse to shut down an anonymous Russian Bitcoin exchange. And the fact that the stolen Mt. Gox Bitcoins were laundered through BTCE and this one guy was running it and he just happened to be on vacation with his family in Greece where they could grab him. Um, you know, that's that's one conspiracy theory why they're kind of pinning it on this guy. Who knows? Maybe he was involved with the theft. Maybe he was involved with the laundry. I, I honestly don't know the full story. Maybe Kim does. You should invite him on your show. I would love to. So do you do you foresee Mount Gox level scams or exit scams happening in the crypto space in the future? I don't know. I mean, it's much more regulated these days. Up? For example, in Japan, you have to do an insane amount of, I mean, it's, it's almost like running a bank, the amount of paperwork you have to do for the compliance to get a license from the government to operate a crypto exchange. And I think in other countries like USA or even China, it's, it's super, super strict. So, I mean, if you send your money off to some country like Malta, where there's no regulations and it's basically the Wild West, you can do anything there, then yeah, don't be surprised. That's where Binance is based. Well, I mean, CZ is probably a, you know doing a good job running it. Um, I don't trade altcoins, so I don't really know. But yeah, I, I think whenever you have a single exchange that's run by a single person, it tends to not that that story ends in a bad way usually, right? But where you, sure, but when sure. you have a big company with lots of directors and auditors, then there's a much smaller chance of anything going wrong. Or if something does go wrong, like in the case of Bitstamp, where they got hacked for five million dollars worth of Bitcoin, you can just raise five million dollars of new investment and become solvent again. So. I think it's all about just not placing too much trust in a single person. In hindsight, do you think that Mt. Gox was something that was necessary? Mt. Gox was coming from the market itself in order to self-regulate itself? I don't know. I mean, there were still a lot of scams after Mt. Gox. I mean, even recently, the whole Quadriga scam. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if any of this is true, but I heard that before the guy died, he was essentially gambling with the customer funds on BitMEX or something like that. We're going to have an episode where we dive into that, but um, and I'll get some people who are very close to him. I, 
I only spoke to him, I think, once, and I spoke to his partners a few times, but it was very odd that his partners all left right before he passed away. He was based in Canada, and he worked very closely with um, the uh, other Canadian. Like, it's not like where Mount Gox or BTCE, they're kind of like reclusive. Um, the Quadriga guys worked very closely with a lot of the prominent Canadian crypto companies. Well, you could say that about we'll a find lot out. of exchanges that fails, right? I think... Tune in next time. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, how many large-scale scams were, you know, doing... But what about in the other industries? What about, like, in the regular banking? How many scams sure. are there? How many banks go down? You hear this all the time. Sure. I think... But then you could just print more money. Yeah. I think that's the thing with any big scam... A lot of them, once they have that certain critical mass of famous people who are affiliated with it, they can say, oh, yeah, my investor is Charlie Shrem, so you should invest too. And, you know, this guy and this guy and this guy. And then before you know it, you've got all the money and the Ponzi scam is, you know, completed, right? Yeah, 100%. Do you, you think you'll live in Japan forever? Yeah, I think it's the best country in the world, honestly. I have to come visit soon. I think I'm next year, my plan is to take the train from Paris to China and then hop on a ferry. You know, they're, they're, um, before airplanes were invented, there was this route called the Asian Highway where you could actually go all the way from like Tokyo to Paris by land and sea. And... I'm doing it. I'm doing it on a train. It's the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Right, exactly. So I'm doing it next year. Obviously, you can't go through North Korea anymore unless your unless your uh, country has a relationship with North Korea. But yeah, you can certainly go from Tokyo to Seoul without using airplane, and that's a really fun trip. If you spend a few nights in each city, you should check that out. I did. I will. I will. So, t- so tell me when you started mining Bitcoin. Um, so actually, I started mining Bitcoin in my house um, as a hobby. And the first serious mining operation I did was when Ethereum started. So this is when I uh, played around with Ethereum a little bit. Of course, now I'm Bitcoin only. But back in those days, I think Ethereum started trading at like $4, something like that. And I had a bunch of GPUs. What I essentially did was I rented this huge warehouse in Los Angeles that had a bunch of electrical capacity. And we built over a hundred mining rigs, you know, in a few weeks and um, we were killing it, man. I mean, we were mining so much Ethereum, just not even using mining pools, just solo mining Ethereum like crazy. And um, then the big fork happened. So I don't, I don't know if you know about the Dow because it, kind of happened when you were in prison, I think. No, I remember. I okay. remember I was actually living in a, in a halfway house when I found out about the Dow. Okay, so that was right after you got out, right? So the it was one of the first ICOs um, on Ethereum for sure called the, the Dow, the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And uh, these guys, they marketed as, you know, if you clicked on terms of service, they would say stuff like, code is law. Like, we don't have any terms because the code is the terms, man. You know, they were trying to be so cool. And sure enough, there were all these security vulnerabilities in their smart contract and he got totally hacked. So 
Right. So Vitalik came out in his infinite wisdom and said, we're going to do a hard fork to bail out the Dow. And when I heard that, I thought he was crazy because that goes against everything that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies stand for. You can't do a rollback. You can't do a chargeback. I mean, if you're going to do a chargeback because you're your thing got hacked, you might as well just run a bank, right? It might just well be a centralized database. Why do you even have a blockchain? So as soon as I a started- A lot of people uh, said I, that Ethereum lost its immutability at that point and it ceased being a decentralized cryptocurrency at that point. Oh, for sure. It was very short-term oriented. He was not thinking long-term at all. So as soon as I heard that he was going to do the hard fork bailout, I immediately- told my investors, all right, we're going to keep mining the old consensus rules no matter what happens. And we ended up mining something like 26,000 Ethereum Classic over the course of like two or three days, which at the time it wasn't even, it wasn't even traded. It was essentially worthless. Uh, everyone, it was so funny how confident these guys that the old chain would just be totally abandoned. Um, they didn't have any replay protection. I mean, this is the first real fork you, you got to remember too. There wasn't a really big blockchain fork before this that was so controversial. And you know, some there was a Bitcoin fork. Well, a lot of people say that it wasn't a real fork, but you know, and when when we upgraded to uh version, I think it was version eight, and it was incompatible with the lower version and it actually forked Bitcoin for, for a little bit. But that was right. that was different. Right. That was not a contentious fork, right? That was more of a technical um, bug or something, right? It wasn't like a philosophical reason for yes. the, so, um, yeah, so, so this is crazy. I think at the time I was only, I was, I was like 0.2% of the entire Ethereum hash rate and essentially 99.5% of the Ethereum hash rate went along with the hard fork and they started mining on the new consensus rules. So here I am with my 0.2% now about- and You're like, no. Yeah, and I basically said, no, reject the fork. So now I'm mining on this old consensus rules, but suddenly I'm 50% of the hash power. So this was pretty crazy. I actually, I actually unintentionally did a 51% attack. So if you look on the Ethereum Classic blockchain, you'll see where there's this huge string of blocks that were just all mined by me. I think it was like 30 or 40 blocks in a row where other people were mining blocks, but because I was solo mining all the blocks on like my local network, I was just orphaning other people's blocks and like not intentionally. Why were your blocks different than other people's blocks? They weren't. Well, you gotta remember Ethereum has an extremely short block time. It's something like 12 seconds. So if you're, in China and I'm in, um, you know, USA somewhere mining with my GPUs and the latency from USA to China is like two or 300 milliseconds. And maybe the verification time of the block say rounds up to one second. If one of the miners on my local network solves a block and someone in China solves a block at the same time, of course, it's going to be propagated on my LAN way faster than it's going to be propagated across the ocean. So I was, I would always just orphan other people's blocks. And even though it was only a short time, like a few hours that I was doing this, it was, it was really interesting to see that my unintentional 51% attack became a hundred percent of the Ethereum hash power because I was orphaning other people's blocks. It really shows you like how powerful having 51% of the hash power is. But so how come your, 
your blocks weren't part of the new Ethereum Classic, and why didn't you end up mining for Ethereum Classic after that? No, I was I was mining Ethereum Classic. That would, the the old consensus rules are now known as Ethereum Classic. At the time, it was like there was this weird ticker. There was like ETHC and ETHH or something like that. And um, now it's standardized and traded. But yeah, I mined something like 26,000 Ethereum Classic in two days. So it was totally worthless. And I think on the third day, Poloniex um, started trading it. Poloniex, yes, thank you. And uh, they started trading like two bucks. And I was like, oh my God, this is great. I just made like 50 grand in like two days, right? And then... Uh, it kept going up. And I think the peak of the market was like $40 or $42 for like one Ethereum classic. So if you, if you think about it in those two days at the peak market value, that was like a million dollars worth of ETC I had mined, which is a pretty good call in retrospect. And I think Kyle Torpy even wrote an article about this, um, uh, mining thing. So of course now when Bitcoin forks, Everyone's trying to mine on the minority chain and do all these kind of... Uh, it's a free hedge. It's a free option. Right. It's a free option. But but back in the day when the first real contentious fork happened on Ethereum, I I would argue that I was the only um, serious miner that that you know realized like, hey, there's a huge opportunity for profit here if I'm right. I basically told my investors like, look, if I'm wrong, yeah, we lose like two or three days of hash power who cares but if i'm right this could be extremely profitable and it was a, it was a very good call in retrospect. it was probably the best call of my entire uh mining career but that was um i think that was, that was back a pivotal like, moment for you well that was back in like 2015 2016 whenever ethereum was doing its thing and um that was after that i took my uh profits from that and i went back to bitcoin um I basically walked away from that mining operation. I mean, you know, I had investors and guys who are still doing it now, but um, the Bitcoin, yeah, just after that, I just really focused on Bitcoin. I just, I just wanted to be a hundred percent Bitcoin maximum. Why? And, well, I think it was that that moment when Vitalik announced the hard fork when I realized that every other coin besides Bitcoin is not pure, right? Like Bitcoin is like this immaculate conception money, whereas everything else is launched by a person or launched by a company. Bitcoin is the only real organic grassroots run by the community in a true decentralized way. Like you said earlier, it's the only coin that has even the slightest chance of winning, right? Against traditional fiat currencies anyway. But you're a capitalist, right? Well, sure. But what I mean to say is I don't think Ethereum is going to put USD or JPY out of business. It's it's more of a competitor to banks than it is a competitor to the underlying fiat currencies themselves. Like, like you said earlier in the podcast, how is Bitcoin going to take on Venmo? And I think that's the mistake that a lot of these uh, altcoins make is that they think the competition is Venmo, but the competition is the Federal Reserve or the central banks or you know anyone who's issuing Zimbabwe dollars. It's all just monopoly money, right? Sure, a hundred percent. And those Venmos are operating on top of 
a legacy financial system. So if we create a better financial system, then eventually people can create apps and programs um, like Venmo's on top of the Bitcoin um, network and the user experience of Bitcoin itself doesn't really matter. Yeah, I mean, look at gold, for example. Gold has been the best store of value for thousands of years, and it has zero merchant adoption, right? I mean, there's there's almost zero apps to trade gold, right? But, you know, that just goes to show you that you don't really need to have a good UX to be a very hard money. And Bitcoin has already accomplished that, right? Like Even like command line Bitcoin is way, way better UX than gold, you know, where you have to like physically move in a vault with armed guards to protect it and all this crazy stuff. You know, you can just push a button. But you have these, I, I just don't understand why you kind of walked away from making money. Um, and I understand you have a fundamental um, belief in Bitcoin as the ultimate end all be all and, and as do I. But if you're mining another coin, you know, or buying and trading it, why not do that if you're making money on the side? Sure. And I, and I think the real answer is if you're a true Bitcoin maximalist, you see the scam of printing money as the real problem that Bitcoin was created to solve. And so that you don't want to engage in you know, supporting altcoins or ICO tokens that, that print money. But if they're going to die anyways, who cares? Well, there, I mean, the reason I mine Bitcoin personally is because I want to support Bitcoin's decentralization nature so that it it's not all going to trend towards where people have cheap electricity or free or stolen electricity siphoned from the grid. I, I want to do it in a country in Japan where it's actually very expensive to mine, except I want to use out of the box ideas to kind of subsidize my electrical costs either with go. How do you do that? Um, so in Japan, we have this really cool feed in tariff program that was started after the Fukushima nuclear plants melted down where the government will guarantee and basically subsidize any electric company actually force them to buy whatever power you feed into the grid at a huge premium uh, over what it's, you know, going for on the... What type of premium? So for example, I can buy power from the grid at like 10 yen per kilowatt hour, but I can sell solar power to the grid at like 18 yen per kilowatt hour. So I only have to generate about half as much as what I consume to break even cash wise on the electric bill. And how do you... Cons how do you in, in a place like Japan that's not very big and you have uh, so much so much of a mountainous regions and most people live in cities, how do you generate that much electricity? So most of Japan is actually centralized in, in cities like Tokyo, right? If you go into the countryside, there's actually a ton of just ghost towns and empty farmlands that's totally not being used. Like, you can actually find some houses where you could probably buy them for $1 or, or get it, get land for free. Land is actually the cheapest and easiest thing to get. Why? Okay. I'll give you an example. The, the town where I'm building my solar farm, you know, there, there's just no people there. There's no economy. There's no jobs. Um, you might 
on a very busy day, you might see one other person who would be a 90 year old lady, you know, gardening in her front yard and her kids who are like in their sixties and seventies are probably taking care of her. But all the young people will go to a city like Tokyo where they can have an actual career. The, the only way you're able to make a successful business out in the deep countryside of Japan is to do a truly self-sovereign, decentralized business like solar farm or Bitcoin mining where you don't need customers, right? You're just working for the Bitcoin network directly. And anybody, anybody else, you know, all the normal non-techie people have to go to the office every day there's just no companies out here to work for right it, except for like maybe the local utility companies or the train company or something like that there's just or no the government. jobs right very interesting um and so today you're building out this solar farm and you're creating your own electricity would you say that you're pretty much um mining bitcoin at almost at cost of the equipment, your electricity doesn't cost you much? That's the thing, right? So what I want to, my, my end goal is to have the option to, for example, if Bitcoin was 20 grand right now, I'd crank up all my miners to 115% of what they're supposed to do, right? I'd use as much electricity from the grid as I could. But in a bear market, I would have the exact opposite strategy. I'd want to only mine as little as I could using the most efficient miners. And I'd actually probably want to sell as much power to the grid as I could. So, you know what I mean? There's a, um, very, there's, there's an actual strategy to my mining business. Whereas everyone else who mines, they pretty much just go wherever in the world has the cheapest electricity plug in the box and they get money out of it. They don't even care about Bitcoin. They just care about making money. So I'm doing it in a way where I want to support Bitcoin from Japan, where it's actually very expensive to do so. So, you know, but but the good side is I actually get a strategy out of it, right? I can decide how I want to mine. I can decide when I want to mine. And it's a lot more flexible. There, there's, there's a lot more strategy involved, right? Do you um, mine Bitcoin to then sell and then to put that money to live off of and then to reinvest it in it? Or are you someone who has the means to essentially mine your Bitcoin and live off something else and you're holding Bitcoin just long-term. So I do my mining as a company and I have investors in my company and I have to, of course, look out for my shareholders' interest. So originally, when my, my, one of my first mining business structures was very, very simple. In fact, you could explain it in like four sentences. It was number one, how much money do we raise from the investors? And then number two, how much, uh, how many Bitcoin miners or how many GPU mining rigs do we build with that money? And then number three, how many Bitcoins did we mine with those miners? And after paying the expenses, number four, what's the net profit return? And you know that just gets paid out to investors on like a pro rata percentage basis. That's a very simple, typical business model for a mining company. That's kind of how most companies operate. Right. But after that, um, th there was a number of problems. And I think you actually asked me earlier on, like, well, why did I walk away from that mining business or something? Whenever you have um, that structure, and of course, there are, there are ways to avoid this with, you know, shareholders agreements or, or whatnot, voting rights. But in that company, 
um, we had so many investors that I was diluted down to like 18% or something like this. And um, I, there was a lot of drama. There was investors like fighting with other investors, you know, saying I invested first, so I should get a better share price and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I realized that I needed to kind of isolate each investor into their own investment vehicle or their own um farm essentially because every investor has their own risk profile or the, you know like you said some people just want to sell the bitcoin right away and get some cash out some of them want to reinvest a hundred percent of that back into buying more miners or expanding the farm and that's what the investors would argue with that so to just prevent all of that drama um now the or one of the business models i have now is um the company actually doesn't do any mining for itself. The company doesn't have investors. The company has customers. So um, maybe it's a little bit more similar to uh, mining contracts, but the mining contracts are uh, for very, very big customers. So say, for example... A lot of mining contracts are scams, though. Totally agree with you. And um, yeah, so this this would be like a legit mining contract. So for example... Um, it's actually more like a hosting company or more like a data center business. So, okay, Charlie, um, say you give me a quarter million bucks and we use that money to buy X amount of Bitcoin miners. Those are your miners. You own them. Then you're going to host them in my facility. So my company owns and operates the facility and kind of manages your miners. But they're my miners. Yes. And we just charge like a management fee and we take a percentage of the bitcoins. And of course we have to pay the electric bill and things. Do like most that. companies operate that way? Um, mining server farms or like they owned you, by, like you said, most uh, mining contract companies are scams. Uh, some of them like, well, forget, forget mining contract companies. The reason I'm asking is that a lot of people say that Bitcoin is actually not really decentralized. It's more centralized because there's only a few dozen serve mining farms that are mining, um, and then you have also mining pools and there's only like three or seven or even 10 pools. And at any given day, three pools can make up 51% of the Bitcoin network. And my response, it, my response to that is always, well, at the end of the day, mining pools don't vote on behalf of their, their miners. Miners vote themselves. Well, it's true in the sense that the mining pools certainly do, um, control the hash power of their users, right? There's only a few pools that allow the users to directly control what transactions they mine into the blocks. Or I think in the case of slush pool, they actually allow the users to vote and take that vote into consideration. Most of the mining pools are just kind of like authoritarian, totalitarian, whoever sure, runs the mining But if a pool. mining pool was behaving badly and, and, you know, giving up the integrity of the Bitcoin network, those miners would leave theoretically. Yeah, in theory, that's how it would work. But yeah, I mean, in that sense, um, the hash power of Bitcoin is certainly, um, it's not as distributed as you would like. And, and again, that's one of the reasons why I'm trying to do my project out in the countryside of Japan is I'm trying to decentralize that Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin hash power. Of course, my percentage would be you know 0.0001% or something tiny like that. But I'm just trying to do my part. If everyone in the world 
had some Bitcoin miners in their house, and maybe this is another bit uh, business model for miners, you know, which I think Twenty One was the name of the company that tried to do this a while back, where they would make some kind of chip that would go. Well, I had heard that this company was trying to launch Bitcoin miners in toasters, but then, um, and I was in prison when they did this. When I got out, I was excited to buy one, um, but then I heard that they didn't actually make toast. <laughs> yeah, the uh... so they're sitting in your kitchen mining Bitcoin. <laughs> And they don't even make toast. Yeah, it's an interesting idea, right? <laughs> but I think in practice, um, the way ASIC miners um, are kind of developed, first of all, like the hardware goes obsolete very, very quickly uh, simply because, you know, electricity is extremely expensive. Uh, it's, it's a finite resource, energy and time, right? So you only want to mine if it's profitable, obviously. So... If you have a chip in your TV that's, you know, using 10 cents of electricity, but only mining five cents of Bitcoin, well, your company is not going to succeed. Right? I mean, maybe if the consumer doesn't know that they're paying for that electricity and, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, it rapidly becomes like some kind of scam or stealing electricity from people. You know what I mean? There's um, basically Do you believe that. Yeah, there, there's that's the thing, right? Mining is so complicated um, with with the hardware and the electricity market. Let's talk about electricity for a second. So, um, and I want you to to tell me if I'm wrong and how I'm wrong. But my belief, and and I will be the first one to admit that I'm wrong very often. Um, but what I will say is what I say to environmentalists who say that Bitcoin is bad for the environment. I say. But you have to understand, you know, guys like Wiz and, and other m big mining groups are not siphoning electricity from hospitals to mine for Bitcoin. Actually, what they're doing is they're building out more alternative and better, cleaner and cheaper forms of energy. And then the excess of that energy is then being used for places like hospitals and things like that in China. And if it wasn't for Bitcoin mining, the environmental movement would actually be at a huge loss right now. No one would pay attention to them. Yeah, actually, I've been studying electricity quite a bit and the electricity markets, um, I guess, for about a year now. And it's actually really interesting how the world gets its electricity and why the price is so radically different in so many markets and countries. Um, so, of course, the best form of energy that you could possibly ever have um, so far is, is nuclear power, right? I mean, imagine this. It's essentially a magical box that just generates a ton of heat. And in fact, it gets so hot that you can run all these boilers and steam and run turbines from it for free 24 hours a day. And it's 365 days a year, 100% reliable. And if the city needs more electricity, you can just kind of, um, you know, put a fuel rod in there or some other control rods to like make it hotter. Or at nighttime, maybe the city doesn't use so much power, you can turn the, you know, nuclear reaction speeds down with some different control rods. Nuclear is actually the best form of electricity. Of course, however, if you screw up, you know, you kind of uh, fuck over the entire city, right? So that huge risk is the um, the epic problem that 
why nuclear has such a bad rap. I think there's actually um, modern designs for nuclear reactors, which are passively cooled and don't require active cooling. Because, I mean, that's the reason why, you know, Fukushima and Chernobyl and all these plants had uh, meltdowns is because in Fukushima, the, the tsunami and the earthquake kind of knocked out the cooling system. So the magical box with all the nuclear fuel in it that gets really, really hot wasn't getting cooled and it, and it, and it melted down. And so now the modern design of nuclear reactors is passive cooling. So even if you have no cooling system at all, it will not melt down or blow up or anything like that. And it's totally safe in that sense. And, and it's very miniature sized. And after a number of years, you can just kind of, um, you know, take that box somewhere else. So the design for nuclear reactors is getting much better. And if you compare that to something like solar or wind, solar power is actually uh, very unreliable, right? Because if it's a cloudy day or if it's, if it's uh, winter and it snows, you might actually generate zero electricity the entire day if your solar panels are covered in snow. And uh, wind is actually the most inconsistent uh, electricity generation device because if the wind blows or if the wind doesn't blow, then you're screwed. You know, it, yeah, you're screwed, right? But and, and you compare that to that nuclear reactor, which just generates as much electricity as you want 24 7, 365, right? So the end result. Yeah, they have battleships that are, that are powered by a nuclear reactor that never need to re refuel, like the life expectancy of. The reactor is like 80 something years and they're small. They fit into like a box, like the size of your laptop. Exactly. It's, it's like magic, right? It's the best form of energy. So the end result of solar it's and the, it's the best, but it's the most dangerous. Yes. The most dangerous. So I think eventually, um, nuclear, nuclear fusion, which is totally safe compared to nuclear fission will be invented and then we'll have free energy. Essentially, I was listening to a talk by a, a scientist who claimed that in the future, um, one of the most technical innovations that we have, well, you'll be able to walk into a store and buy a small uh, nuclear reactor, nucle like you said, nuclear fusion, and um, be able to keep it in your house and generate as much electricity as you need for five to 10 years. Yeah, that's the, the dream. Huh? So yeah, if you compare solar and wind to that, I mean, solar and wind pretty much suck compared to that, right? Because... Um, the sun only shines five or six hours a day on average, if you're lucky. Right. So, you know, that's on a, on a clear day. If it's on a cloudy day. Or Has the solar panel industry peaked? No, I mean, solar panels are getting the, the, the technology is improving all the time. And I think what will eventually happen is that solar panels will become so efficient that it will be financially, um, feasible or it'll just be cheaper to use solar than like gas or, you know, whatever other traditional generation methods people are using. You're never going to get to the, the free energy factor of nuclear. No, of course, but you can Not do for better a while, than gasoline. Right. And, and that's where Tesla, uh, Tesla is really making a lot of progress in their solar panels and batteries and electric cars. I mean, they, they kind of, uh, leading the industry, but in terms of building, but your, you can't, you can't go fully off the grid. Um, with Tesla and even with, with anything. So why not? Um, I, well, I love what you said about Japan, about selling energy back to, back to the government that they, you know, at a premium, but I live here in, in Florida, I live on an Island 
and we got hurricanes a lot, you know, at least one bad storm a year. And so we, once a year, we'll have to evacuate. Um, so much so that people keep second houses on the mainland just as like hurricane houses. Um, a lot of people do. So I live on this island and it's great. Electricity is not expensive in Florida. Um, I re- I heavily look into um, trying to go off the grid um, as it relates to my energy. I looked into two things. I looked into a generator. So I don't have natural gas pipes running under my, under my house uh, on the island. They don't have natural gas. And even if they did... Um, natural gas is one of the first thing that gets shut off, shut off during a hurricane because they're, they're afraid of, you know, leaking and, and fires and explosions. So they shut, they shut the gas off. Um, even before you lose electricity, you lose gas. So that, that's, that was out. Um, the second option is propane. I have a, a small propane tank under my, under my house, 250 gallons. And that propane tank powers, uh, my stove, um, what lawn, a washing machine dryer, uh, the hot water heater for the shower and uh, a hot tub, a hot tub heater. So you don't, I don't need much, you know, 250 gallons last half a year, whatever it is. Um, so I looked into it and they said, well, if you put a thousand gallon tank under your house and you put in a generator in, you could, and it's full, theoretically, you could have power for um, almost a month. And that, I mean, without getting a, a delivery. And so I'm saying to myself, okay, a month is a pretty long time. But the cost for that would be thirty to fifty thousand um, dollars, and then the third option is solar. You know, um, but you need my roof is not big enough to to hold enough panels to be able to to give me my daily need, and then have enough and backup in there for a few weeks. Um, you need farms for that. You don't have you know solar panels are not efficient enough. However, that's not the problem. The problem is in Florida is that when the Florida Power and Light the, the main utility, you know, cause we only have every state only has one utility, even though technically they're private companies, but they're really not. Cause there's only one, you don't have a choice really kind of in New York. You do now you have Con Edison, you have Ambit energy. They've, they've, uh, they've broken up the monopolies, but 99% of the population still only has one choice when it comes to their, to their energy needs. Um, however, if they, if, if Florida power and light says, energy is off and they shut off the power, you have to shut off your power as well. So if I have my own, if I have my own generator or my own solar energy and, and I'm running and they shut off the power, I have to, my power has to shut off too. And the reason for this is they say, cause it sounds crazy. It's my power. Why do I have to shut it off? They say is that they don't want your power going into the grid when their grid is off. And I understand that. And then they offer these people have built these hack kind of devices that enable like triggers that if the the power is off but you're still creating energy it'll keep your house on but you can get heavily fined for that <laughs> How, it's crazy well i've built i've actually as part of my research into the solar farms um i've actually built a few off-grid systems and you can literally go on amazon right now and for a few hundred bucks you know get uh couple solar panels and a battery pack and a charge controller and an inverter and have an off-grid system you you can assemble it in an afternoon you know even if you have very little um roof area or wherever you're going to put the panels it's it's actually really simple to set that up but like you said if you want to power an entire house off of it it's just uh very difficult to do unless you have a lot of real estate we got to create a token for that 
(laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, yeah, if that's the thing, right? Token um, energy is a finite resource, but tokens are infinite, right? So, yeah. So, how do you tokenize something like that? But listen, um, we're almost two hours into this. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Our guests can can catch you on twitter.com forward slash W-I-Z uh, Wiz. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to have you on again in the next few weeks because we have so much more to talk about. Um, really thank you so much for coming on the show and, and have a great night. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. See you next week.